want to go to there. Snipe! Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, full hearts, get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound Insights TV podcast. This is Kate Kulzik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? I'm feeling strangely <laughs> ambivalent towards many things lately, which hopefully our listen- won't bother our listeners too much, but probably it will. Well, I know something we started talking about in the TV sphere a little earlier. I'm curious if you're ambivalent about is this announcement from from Letterman that he will be leaving next year because I'm frankly, I'm ambivalent about it. Well, I mean, it seems to be generally agreed upon that Letterman kind of stopped caring 20 years ago or possibly longer ago. Like, he, you know, he like many people. I mean, it's been rumored that once upon a time Jay Leno had an edge, but I definitely wasn't alive for that. Uh, I may have been alive for some of the time when Letterman did, but that was long ago. I mean, he's not technically retiring until next year. They've already floated quite a few names, uh, including Colbert, who I think actually could be pretty likely, especially just because he may... You you would kind of think that playing a character is something that you don't want to do for your whole life. But uh, personally, I would be... in In terms of people they might actually take and people who I think would be good at it, I would be perfectly happy with NPH. Oh, yeah, that would be a lot of fun. And he's wanted to host stuff for quite a while. I know he's, he's talked about wanting to have a variety show. So whether or not they go that, that way, but that you know that could be fun. I hadn't heard that name floated yet, but I think it makes sense. And uh, there's a lot of people that make sense. I, the thing for me is I think uh, Jimmy Fallon is really doing a, a fantastic job based on the the little I've seen of that take, transition and takeover. So trying to find someone who fits at that time slot with that desired audience, but isn't going to try to do what Fallon's doing. He's going to try to create his, their own identity. I say his, I would love it to be a woman. It's not going to be a woman. Uh, so his create his own identity. Uh, I, I'm not really sure. Well, and the the thing with it being a woman is like, I'm struggling to think of, someone who has the requisite experience uh, and who will attract the uh, the requisite demographic uh, and who they might actually theoretically take. Like, maybe Faye or Polar? Maybe? But they're, even they're kind of a stretch. Well, there are, I think there are, are many, many women who would do a wonderful job, but I just don't see... Oh, oh yes. I, sorry. To be clear... I'm not saying that there aren't lots of people and lots of women who would do a great job, but I'm trying to think of people who are in the realm of people who will actually be theoretically maybe selected. Yeah, they're they're gonna pick they're gonna pick a white guy. They're gonna pick a not too young but not too old, very likable person. That's who they're going with. So that's why I don't expect them to, for example, bump up Craig Ferguson. He's gonna stay in his time slot, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I saw him floated around a bit as well. It would be nice if they took someone who didn't already have a show. Yeah. 
Well, let us know what you guys are are expecting or hoping for with that. And uh, maybe we can have a little fun with that. But uh, the main thing for me was that I hadn't heard, I had missed the announcement. And so I heard about it a couple days later. And the fact that this was sort of out there for a couple days and it didn't even come close to bursting the Twitter bubble or like the kind of shows or interesting things about television that the people that at least I follow on Twitter are talking about tells me that whoever it is, they're going to have to do a lot to get people reinvested in, in late night in general, but in CBS late night. Yeah, I think that's true. I think some of that has to do with how the news came out, which is that it got leaked through Mike Mills, formerly of REM for some reason, I guess they're pals. So he said the day before, I think even two days before, oh yeah, Dave Letterman's retiring. It wasn't until the following night that Letterman himself announced it. It was pretty strange. Uh, but yes, I, I think that the there is definitely uh, a lot of shrug shoulders because, yeah, th they're going to really need someone who can re-energize people's interest in, in that segment of uh, of television. We may not be hugely involved or interested in the late night game, but there is a lot of uh, TV going on right now that we're talking about. Uh, we'll be talking with Noel Kirkpatrick of TV.com uh, at the end of the show about Flickly, only our fourth anime to to make it to the DVD shelf. So that was that was fun and uh, a very I enjoy on the spectrum of anime just like. The most accessible show you can think of, at least for me, is Cowboy Bebop, which, of course, we've done. And then this isn't the least accessible anime out there, but I enjoy the just like the compare and contrast between a show like Cowboy Bebop and a show like Furikuri. Yeah, you'd think on paper they're kind of similar, but no. by approach <laughs> and tone and lots of other things, they're really quite quite distinct but that that was a lot of fun and that'll be coming at the end of the show uh we did speak with you guys quite a bit this week carl says kate and simon i think what we can learn from the how i met your mother finale is that relationship trumps uh twist i think about relationship in two ways the relationships the characters have with each other and the relationship we have as the audience with the characters especially if you have followed a show like this and it has been because you like hanging out with them and not so much the mystery of the mother i do think it's possible to have surprise but when it is at the cost of of the time and emotional investment we put in in. That's why this failed so badly. I think Seinfeld was also a bit like this, where they went uh, for the punchline of them ending up in jail for being despicable, selfish characters, but we still loved them in a weird, goofy way. What do you think of that comparison between the Himium finale and Seinfeld? Uh, I'm not sure I, I totally track the comparison, although this whole issue kind of, you know, listening to people uh, bitch about the finale, as they rightfully should, because it was a really, really bad, not at all very good finale. What I find strange is that everyone is complaining about the very ending when for me just the whole thing was off the rails even though like i haven't heard anyone complain about the barney stuff which to me was just horrific <laughs> i'm just trying to not start rehashing what we talked about last week but uh, i do think the the reactions have been very interesting to track over the course of the week and uh, i'm sure they're It'll be something that we're still talking about at the end of the year, maybe when we're reflecting back on 2014 in, in television. But uh, for now, let's move on to Augustine, who says, I was wondering, have you two seen or heard of a TV show called Harper's Island that aired on CBS around 2009? I don't know if it aired in Canada for you, Simon, but I'm guessing it did since the show was obviously filmed in Vancouver and featured several Canadian TV actors. Basically, the premise of the show was a whodunit murder mystery with elements of slasher films and the look and feel of the Saw films. I found myself enjoying the show quite a bit. The premise was executed in a clever and entertaining way. The cast was good, and the two standout performances were Katie Cassidy and Christopher Gorman. The 
level of gore and violence of the show surprised me since it aired on a primetime network, kind of similar to Hannibal in a way. Even though the show only lasted one season, it did manage to tie up all the loose ends when it came to the mystery, so it ended up on a satisfying note. I recommend it to both of you if you haven't seen it, although I don't know about you, Kate, since you are still a lightweight when it comes to horror. Also, I just heard that they are making a Scream TV series. I can't help but feel it will be similar to Harper's Island when it does premiere. As for my favorite Twilight Zone episodes, I always liked The Dummy, and I also really liked Jess Bell, starring the late Anne Francis. Uh, Yeah, I'm familiar with Harper's Island. I didn't watch it. Because uh, it didn't really seem like it was my kind of thing, my kind of bag. Uh, but I know I have a, I have a few friends who are more into the the B movie or campy thing, and they really enjoyed Harper's Island. Did you watch it, Simon? I uh, heard of it, saw it on DVD shelves, never actually watched it. And what do you think about this notion of a uh, of a Scream TV series? I don't. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that we need that. I mean, I, we don't need many things. We'll talk about a few things we don't need at the later in this podcast, but we didn't even need Scream 2 or 3 or 4. <laughs> and yet. And yet. It's even debatable as to whether or not we needed the first one, but I'll I'll leave that there. I I, I do enjoy uh I, or I should say I remember enjoying Scream the first one. It's been a while and I don't know if I've seen any of the other ones, though I know it is a favorite series of, of many people, at least horror kind of slasher series. Um, but yeah, that, that's, uh, that'll be interesting to follow, and especially if they try to do it on network TV, that would be interesting. You'd probably remember the second one because, spoiler alert, Timothy Oliphant was the killer. I think I remember knowing that more than watching it, but... <laughs> I, I don't know. Let's uh, move on. Next, we heard uh, from Mario uh, talked about a bit about the Walking Dead thing that that was greatly appreciated. Mario <laughs> also talked about Walking Dead with Ken, Randy, and Ricky. Carl, uh, our listener from earlier, has put together some really great enlisted posters, and he's got these trading cards that he's uh, mocked up for each of the different characters. It's really neat. I'll be tweeting it out um, around the same time that I that this goes out, so you can check uh, my Twitter feed if you want to find that. But it, it's really cool, and I'll link it in the post, too. So if you're a fan of Enlisted, you might enjoy that. thought I'd mention it. I talked about Elementary with Shan, Caroline, and Kristen, and uh, Hannibal, lots of Hannibal talk with Keith, Ken, Carl, Brian, Noel, Alicia, Sean, Amanda, Zach, Dennis, and many other people. Uh, Jordan and I talked about some Doctor Who, and including Joe Grant. Joe Grant, I know you have no idea what I'm talking about with this, Simon, but Joe Grant is underappreciated uh, in many ways, I feel, and her escapology is just one of the ways she is underappreciated. I'm on the big, on the Joe Grant bandwagon, but uh, Jordan, I'm curious if your thoughts on her have changed over time. Let me know. Uh, And then also, I I should mention, I'm all signed up for Comic-Con. So San Diego Comic-Con, I will be headed back this year. The hotel sale was this morning by the time you guys are hearing this. So hopefully, it's it's my first time having to stay at a hotel for Comic-Con, Simon. I'm a bit afraid. Why would you be afraid? Just because, first of all, it's going to be expensive. Uh, I've been okay, I've been fortunate enough. enough to stay with friends the previous years, uh, but with my sister joining me this year, I, I felt like let's not overstay. You know, I want to still be friends with these people after Comic Con. Figured I should confirm that. Let me know if you're going to be in Comic Con. We'll be talking about it later uh, in the summer, but uh, I, I will be. I'll be around. I'll be tweeting. Uh, I'll be heading to the Battleship Retention meetup. I'm assuming that they're doing that again. It was so much fun the previous few years. And so, if you want to, if, if you're going to be around at, at Comic Con, let me know. Always look forward to you know meeting some of the, you lovely people that I only know online. Actually, putting a face with the the Twitter handle and all of that. 
Uh, and again, yeah, once again, Simon, you have negative interest in Comic-Con, I'm guessing. Uh, yeah, if anything, that just amplifies over the years. <laughs> we should get into our, our week in TV. A lot of fun shows to talk about. Just a, a few premieres this week. You know, a little Game of Thrones, maybe? Uh, maybe. I hear that's a thing that people care about. Yeah, yeah. So we'll take a break and we'll come right back with the comedies. This week in comedy, we have uh, we talk a little bit about community and Mindy Project, as well as the premiere of Inside Amy Schumer season two. Silicon Valley had their pilot, and of course, V premiered. Before we get into the premieres, I just wanted to mention Community, G.I. Jeff. I really enjoyed this episode. I, I, I've i seen the G.I. Joe movie, uh, but didn't really watch it as a kid, didn't watch the the show. Uh, and yet I still had a lot of enjoyment out of it. I remember the, one of the great things about the G.I. Joe movie, before it goes all Cthulhu, which is kind of amazing and ridiculous, they actually do shoot people in, in the movie. There's like blood and everything. Uh, so I'm, and I, so I've heard before that the whole discussion of how come they always miss. So I thought it was really fun the way they, you know, had that element be such a driving force of this episode. I, I thought it was really fun, really creative, and uh, I'm I'm on the community bandwagon right now. I'm not I'm not fully on board with the show in general, but I really have enjoyed a lot of what they've done this season, and uh, I look forward to what they do in their sort of two part finale. And Mindy Project, I already mentioned this a couple weeks ago, my thoughts on the mid-season premiere, but I wanted to mention it again because we have a new writer at Sound On Sight who, uh, her first piece with us was a article about the Mindy Project and how it's sort of transitioned from this this very female-centric and uh, very feminist kind of show into a show that has really only one female character and who's, you know, all, all of the main characters wind up being defined through their roles as potential sexual partners or romantic partners for Mindy. And I think that's really interesting. And aside from the, the elements of the show, like just the humor of the show, is it funny? Does it make you laugh? Does it engage you? Yes, I would say that's all true. I hadn't noticed that there basically are no interesting or developed female characters on the show at this point besides Mindy. And, uh, and, and I think that's actually a really good point to, to mention. So I would recommend if you're interested in that topic at all, go to Sound On Sight and uh, take a look at that article. And when you contrast that with our next show, Inside Amy Schumer, it's a, it's all the more more glaring. What did you think of this premiere? And how great is it to have Amy Schumer back? Uh, it's pretty great as much as I wasn't totally blown away by this premiere. More than anything else, my big takeaway from this episode is if anyone ever wants to take the sketch where Paul Giamatti is God and make a whole show out of it. I'm so down for that because that sketch was brilliant from beat one to beat the last. Uh, there were, there had to be, I don't know, two dozen laugh moments in that four or five minute sketch. It was just pound for pound by far the funniest thing that I saw all week, which is doubly confusing because the rest of the episode is so hit or miss but mostly just a lot of missing 
Yeah, a lot of the um, reviews I saw for for this episode were a lot more positive than I was on it, so I'm glad to hear that I'm not alone. I still really enjoyed this premiere. I'm very glad to have the show back, uh, and I like the episode next week quite a bit more than than this one. So there's there's more good comedy coming uh, and, and good jokes. But yeah, definitely that was the the bit that stood out the most to me. Just the notion of Paul Giamatti as God was pretty entertaining. Um, and as for the rest, what I mean, what did you think about the woman on the street elements and the stand up elements? Do you do you think that's being more balanced or handled in a more balanced way this season or is that still somewhat jarring for you um i mean i enjoyed the sort of grab bag approach we got last year and i'm I'm glad it's still there it didn't provide for any huge laughs this week but it it's always a nice sort of uh change of pace the i think the main issue is just that the sketches that weren't the giamatti one were just just kind of there like okay this is the idea we're just gonna drag this out for four to six minutes and you know, and it, you know, lots of big swings and big misses, like the tennis sketch, for instance, which seemed weirdly dated. Like I haven't even heard an Anna Kournikova reference in, I don't know, five years. Uh, just yeah, I don't know. Like I, I appreciated the effort, and it does seem like maybe there was a slight uptick in production values this year, but maybe it's a little early to tell. And I'm I'm sure also we're gonna get a whole bunch more uh, high profile guests as well. But yeah, there was just nothing on the inspiration level of the Giamatti is God sketch. And the, the thing about this, that sketch that, that is so great is that it's not just funny because it's Paul Giamatti playing God. You know, that sketch's version of God is very specific and is like, I just can't think of seeing that sort of comic depiction of of, of God before. Like, you'd, you'd think that someone would have, you'd think that somebody would have come up with a sitcom with God in it before, actually. And I can't think of any. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got to work to give God limits if you're going to have him be one of your main characters. But uh, but there's definitely potential there. You mentioned the, the tennis sketch, and that was the sketch that I had the most issue with just because that to me feels – and maybe I'm, – I'm sure this is influenced by that 30 for 30 episode they did uh, last last year about representations of women in sports and how – uh, there was so much backlash against Anna Kornikova for exploiting her, her appearance and uh, taking advantage of that to get more for out, out of her career. And this notion of diminishing someone's accomplishment in being able to, for example, make it to Wimbledon or the, the these huge, amazing tournaments because she's not the best, is only very good, not the the very best, but and somehow because she's attractive and is praised for that, it's she's a bad person or she's not worthy. I don't know that I was, I was troubled by that. Yeah. I, I, I definitely see where you're coming from with that. I actually think the receptionist sketch was even less funny. Yeah. But that one committed uh, to an idea and a tone in a big way. So I was, you know, I, I enjoy that sort of 30 screwball thing anyways. So I, it, while I wasn't laughing, I appreciated the commitment. Yeah, I, at first I thought it was like a weird metaphorical sketch for consent, but then I just realized I was overthinking it, and it was just a big dumb slapstick thing. What did uh, what did you think of the Silicon Valley pilot? Um, ah, uh, okay, so this is where I start my parade of disillusionment. I get, I think what here's what I like about Silicon Valley. I like that uh, Mike Judge is coming from a very specific place and has an idea of he has a very specific idea of what this world is he seems he has some experience in it and he's clearly uh, worked hard to present a milieu 
that is developed and feels real and feels palpable and feels like something that could exist. I appreciate all that, but A, I didn't really laugh. I sort of kind of chuckled at that one line about Martin Starr and his Levian Satanism and the Upside Down Cross. That was kind of funny. Beyond that, I just kept thinking, the this is a group of characters and a setting that I am just never going to care about. Yeah, they're... I, I, maybe I went in with too high of expectations given how strong a critical reception the show has received thus far. And I did, I have heard that it improves over the course of, of the episodes that people have seen, the five episodes they've seen out of the eight. And of course, pilot, pilots are hard. Comedy pilots are even more hard. Yes, yes, all of that. But I wasn't laughing. I was very strongly feeling the absence absence of any women on the show there's one token woman who's there to be very pretty and a potential love interest on the line it feels like already uh for our lead and, and along with that i also i'm not interested in most of these characters as much as i do enjoy the the actors you know I, martin Starr. it's so great to see him on my tv again in you know in a show like this it's good to see christopher evan welch uh we are both very saddened uh when he passed away uh, last year and uh and, and the whole jobs and bill gates thing is a lot of fun but most of the characters i'm just i'm not i'm not interested in them and i certainly am not interested in uh their their random just conversations back and forth they're not engaging enough for me and so maybe it's just and i'm hoping it'll improve i'm going to keep checking in because of the strength of the cast and the potential for a show set here and also of course the mike judge of it all but but no i i was certainly I was certainly underwhelmed. Well, and I think the other issue for me is that this sh I feel like the show thinks it's presenting sort of a new form of, of male protagonists, you know, in the, in the sense that, you know, we're watching these sort of, you know, quote unquote beta males and their bonding and their, uh, their sort of own separate bro culture. But it doesn't feel innately more interesting to me than, say, Entourage. <laughs> It feels like a show that thinks it's it's pre representing a an underrepresented group, but they're not. White guys are not an underrepresented group. M you know, youngish, twenty to thirty something white guys. Uh, that's not underrepresented. So, uh, and, and especially not in comedy, especially guys who don't know if they can connect with women and et cetera, et cetera. I've I've seen these characters many, many times before. Yeah, and I, I think it was, um, I, I forget who it was on Twitter who said that this presents uh, machismo in an in a heretofore unseen form. I'm not sure about that. Maybe if I check in on another episode or two uh, and see if they've developed these characters in an interesting way, maybe. But just based on the pilot, it feels like, you know, it feels like typical bro comedy by other means. And like I said, I, I, I do appreciate that a lot of thought went into presenting uh, this this universe and uh, sort of some of the more technical aspects. And that sense of, spe of specificity is there. But in general, it just fe it feels like it's kind of lacking. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that this will, you know, improve over the next few weeks and that I'll be laughing out loud soon. But for right now, I, I was a little underwhelmed. How did you feel about the the Veep premiere? Uh, I felt better about the Veep premiere. Uh, and watching them back to back was kind of interesting because, for instance, I feel like the, the, the equivalent of a Silicon Valley character on Veep is probably Jonah. But the nice thing about Veep and, you know, Ianucci in general is that he's able to take a landscape where, 
yes, all the characters are assholes, but they're kind of distinct assholes. And uh, that he's able to, to find some level of interplay that's a little bit more dynamic. And as much as I wasn't laughing out loud consistently throughout the V premiere, I will say that the fate of Jonah made the whole episode worth it. Well, and also just the reactions to it. It was delightful. <laughs> yeah, just the sheer... That was one of the purest... Uh, one of the purest visual representations of schadenfreude ever in recent... At least in recent comedy that I can think of. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. And, and like you say, the the... Yes, these are all type A people. These are all uh, terrible people, but they each have, feel like they have a distinct voice. And after the Silicon Valley premiere, I could not tell you distinct things about most of those characters. And even obviously, they're they're starting their third season. Their Veep is you know a show that we've both very much enjoyed the past couple of years. So it's not fair to compare them. However, we're going to do it anyway. We're going to do it anyway. I laughed a lot more at Veep and I'm a lot more interested in in the, that journey over, you know, the journey of the campaign that we look like we're going to be presented with in this season of Veep as compared to the building of this company on Silicon Valley. Yeah. And the I, w I will say the, the vulgar one liners weren't quite up to par this week, but I'm sure they're just warming up. Yeah, and I also like how they use Kevin Dunn and Gary Cole this week, and the notion of them getting tied in with the campaign, I think, should work a lot better than what we saw with last year, where they didn't quite fit in with the group. That'll give just a narrative urgency to the season and to the interactions that I think should be very interesting. So I'm looking forward to this season of Beat. Yeah, lots of, uh, just as, as, a, as an aside, you know that a show's got a better sense of character when it throws in just little asides that say a lot about about character and character interactions that other shows just wouldn't find the time for like for instance when kevin dunn comes to selena's uh hotel room and they're just kind of hanging out for a bit and she just kind of gets him like they're they're having a very friendly conversation but she still gets him to uh, go sit over on that chair where you're further away just <laughs> little things like that like not laugh out loud funny but totally in character and totally worked through in a in a very developed way or even just that when she's sitting around in her room signing books She's unzipped her dress to make it a little more comfy, and then when he, when you know they come in, she has to, she has to zip it back up. There's not a joke to that; it's just a touch of character. Yeah, exactly. Or just her sitting around trying to knock her books over, <laughs> just by kind of leaning on it over and over again. Just no big joke. It's just you know this is the sort of thing she would do if there was no one around. Yeah. Well, uh, what wins your week in comedy? Uh, I'm definitely giving it to Veep. And uh, if 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 Schumer had had more, if if it had all been Giamatti quality, absolutely I give it to Schumer. But for consistency, I'll give it to Veep. Yeah, I think I'm close to giving it to Community, but uh, I'm gonna give it to Veep. And uh, it's the little consensus here, and we'll come back right after this with our week in genre. <laughs>
This week in genre, we are going to touch in with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and then also Grimm, as well as dive into Hannibal, Futamono, and the Game of Thrones premiere, Two Swords. First, I just wanted to sort of check in with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because they've really brought things together in the last couple of weeks. There's a lot more fun and energy and uh, action. The pacing is much better. These uh, sort of other characters they've brought in have really helped. Bill Paxton's character works really well, has a really great rapport, uh, specifically the relationship they've built up with him and Coulson works really well. And just they're, they're using the, the people that they have much more effectively and much more entertainingly. So good job, S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, much better, much improved, and I look forward to seeing when Patton Oswalt shows up in two weeks. I didn't know he was going to be on the, sh- on the show. I'm very excited about this. We always love Patton Oswalt here on the Televerse. Is that enough to get you to tune in? Uh, no. I mean, I, I heard everything you said about increased fun and action. I didn't hear anything about stakes or the sense that any of this is really going anywhere. It is, and there are... Um, I have not seen... Uh, Captain America 2 yet and as I understand it and I've somehow avoided spoilers on that but as I understand it there's massive developments with S.H.I.E.L.D. in that film which uh, are going to be reflected and also lead to massive changes on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. by necessity so that that's all coming there's a sense of change I would I basically I would not be surprised if season 2 of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is basically the A-team in a jet but I don't know, and I don't want to say anything because I don't want to spoil somebody. I guess. I don't know. It's just I haven't heard it. I, I Every few weeks I hear, oh, the show is finally getting better again. But I never hear anything about it that makes it sound like a creatively, um, like like they're taking any kind of real chances, basically. Yes. I hear what you're saying. Uh, I'm still going to give them points for the show being fun now in a way that uh, I was hoping it would be in the start of the season and it sort of hasn't been until this point. So I'll I'll leave it there and then mention Grimm, Synchronicity. My review should be up at Soundsight for this. And I just wanted to mention it because they let the women shine once again this week and it's it's just a blast. I like that they brought back Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio and the way that they tied her in with Adeline's uh, storyline. And I mean, the, there's just a lot of fun this week with the different relationships and, and how tied in everything is. They let Juliet be awesome once again. And just the this show really does its women, it, it's does well by its women in a way that so few genre shows do. It's it's delightful. So I, I had to mention Grimm this week. But let's let's talk a bit about uh, Hannibal. Obviously, the Sound of Sight Hannibal podcast should already be up in, in your Televerse feed if you subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, if not, you can listen to myself and uh, my co-host, John Coletti. And then this week, our guest was Dennis Perkins from the AV Club. So if you want to listen to us talk about it for like an hour or so, you can check that out at Sound on Sight or in your feed. But Simon, what did you think of this week's episode? Uh, it didn't really reverse my general feeling that Hannibal's kind of losing me a bit. Not in the sense of that I'm going to stop watching, but just it, just in the sense of my that deeper level where I'm really invested in what's going on is kind of slipping from me. I continue to be totally enthralled on an aesthetic level, and I admire how clever it is in its construction, but there's more admiration than actual enjoyment to be had, and the whole twist with Hannibal and Atlanta did not help with that. Oh, I see. I was absolutely fine with that. And um, I thought I thought it was handled very well. I thought it made sense. And uh, yeah, and, and, and I, I continue to be fully on the Hannibal bandwagon. Um, I'm really enjoying the season. I can see it has a different feel than the first season 
did. I, I think like maybe you guys talked about this on the podcast. I'm not sure, but like it just it feels inconsistent in its handling of violence in a way that kind of bugs me. I mean, it was such a shock to the system when Beverly Katz died and there was such a sense of, you know, this changes things, this uh, this elevates the stakes. But then this week we're back to Corpse of the Week with sort of uh, with kind of a whimsical Brian Fuller sensibility straight out of Pushing Daisies, almost literally, and back to Scott Thompson and Aaron Abrams kind of joking around about it. I'm like, really? Like, we're, we're doing this again in the exact same way as before already? Well, that's interesting. I didn't feel like Beverly's death was a huge shock or changed anything for me. So maybe that's the, that's part of the disconnect. But you, you don't think it should change it for the characters? Well, I think, you know, they should be in mourning. And I think we see Hannibal dealing with his his recent experience this week, very much so. Um, and I do think we see a shift in, I, I think we see a shift in Jack based on uh, having lost uh, Beverly. As, you as think well so? As have, because yeah. he's, he's in there in the lab with them joking about the corpse. It's not necessarily joking like, like, like. LOL joking, but there there is a sense of levity to it that just, I don't know, it feels out of place to me so soon after what we just saw. Okay. Do you feel like that is also the case for Will? Do you feel like Will is does not feel Beverly's death? Um, Kind of. It's not as much an issue with Will. My, my main issue with Will is the same as before, where uh, the turn with him kind of has made me care about him less. And actually, I was thinking about what you said last week about would it have been... Uh, evil for him to not try to kill Hannibal, which is weird because it's you're sort of arguing in favor of capital punishment <laughs> in a <laughs> in a in a way that I don't know if you intended to do. Well, and... that's not an argument in favor of capital punishment at all. Because when you are putting when you you have have someone arrested and stuck in a jail cell somewhere, they aren't free to kill people. Yeah, but different. he's not talking about arresting Hannibal. He's talking about killing him. Yes, because he he's tried to arrest him and he isn't able to. It's vigilante justice. It's an argument for vigilante justice, if anything, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that okay. that makes it better. <laughs> so you're arguing for vigilante justice. Um, anyway, and the idea of Will as vigil as unrepentant vigilante is not interesting to me and sort of disengages me from what's going on. Okay. Well, uh, I'm. I want to get into it so much, but that that is for another. Literally, that is the discussion for another podcast. Yeah, I, I will say that if you're a fan of the music on the show, just as a plug to Brian Reitzel, because he's awesome, he has a record coming out uh, in a couple of weeks, I believe. It's called Auto Music. There's a track from it that's already out with Kevin Shields. It's pretty cool. It doesn't sound anything like the music on Hannibal because he's kind of a jack-of-all-trades, but if you if you like his work on the show, then consider uh, supporting him that way. Interesting. Uh, what did you think of uh, this week's Game of Thrones? Some memorable music there turning back up. Uh, yes. I, I have to remember every year when Game of Thrones starts up that the starts of its seasons are really, really sluggish. Uh, by that rubric, uh, this was a pretty decent opener in terms of incident and, you know, catching us up with characters. I think my problem with Game of Thrones right now is that I'm having trouble believing that after killing off the characters that they have, that there's anyone left um that i actually care about who i think they might act who i think is actually in in danger um you know even by the rules of game of thrones it's too uh it's too depressing to kill off Arya. it's too depressing to kill off sansa 
I'm, I'm, if if any of these people die, I'm sure I sound like an idiot right now. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's too depressing to kill off, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Everyone else, I kind of don't care about. Uh, and if they do kill the people that it's too depressing to care, that, you know, that it's too depressing for them to kill off, then I'll stop caring in a different way. So I don't know. I, they're in a tough spot right now where uh, the characters that I do care about kind of seem like they're in a they're in a they're sort of going around in circles. Like we've had the same beat. I feel like with Arya in virtually every scene we've had with her, where she's you know. She wants vengeance, and occasionally she sort of gets to act out on it, but mostly she's just very angry. Uh, we've had the same plot for uh, for Daenerys for <laughs> basically the whole show now. No, for the last two seasons at least. Um, we've had pretty much the same plot for Sansa for a long time. Uh, so I need to see them do new things with these characters in the immediate future if I'm going to be really invested in this season. Well, how did you feel about uh, one of the things... Obviously, we talk about this and the Sound of State Game of Thrones podcast with my, uh, myself and Ricky D. And this week, our guest is Ryan McGee. And, and so it was a lot of fun talking with them. And that's, again, that should be up in your Televerse feed or uh, it's available at Sound on Sight. Uh, but so you, we, there's more discussion there. I'll keep it brief here. I, I, one of the things that this episode does really well in the, its opening is sort of is reaffirm or remind the audience of the presence of of Ned and the how far the show has come since its first season how did you feel about the the pairing of the opening of the episode with the, the destruction of Ned's great sword and sort of that reminder of him and his philosophy and his lessons to his children paired with at the end of the episode uh, the 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 Arya and her tr sort of continuing transformation into a character not you know, maybe closer to somebody like, like, uh, Polliver, who she kills, than the person she was, uh, when she was her father's daughter. I mean, I don't think that we're supposed to do anything except root for Arya. I mean, I, I didn't, if we were supposed to feel like, oh, she's taken a dark turn and, you know, this is bad because she's so young, like, I don't think that in the context of the universe of this show, I don't think that there's any way to take her evolution as an, as a bad thing. Oh, I huh. and that's interesting. I think you can root for her and want her to succeed and want her good things to happen for her and to her to get what she wants without wanting her to turn into a soulless killer. Have you seen Westeros is the thing though? <laughs> like <laughs> you know, pretty much you do that. I mean, at least maybe not if you've got some power, but if you're an essentially powerless human, uh you know, your your choices are to do that. Or go the way of Ned. So, I mean, I don't really see her as having a choice. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, any thoughts on our new character this week? Characters? Uh, that depends on if you count the recasting of Dario or not, which I found incredibly distracting. Oh, I like, but I mean, we like Michael Huseman, right? I was very I like that. Michael Huseman. I just found it weird that they cast someone who looks absolutely nothing like the original actor. Yeah, I'm fine with it. Anyway, um... The Oberlin Martell, I mean, yeah, I mean, okay, great. The show has another badass. I don't really get why I should care about him just yet. I, I, I take it he's a, a big deal. The I really did not like the. Uh, maybe it was other shows making making this uh, look bad in comparison, but I really did not like the scene with the prostitutes. It felt like Game of Thrones season one all over again. 
I was fine with that. Um, I, the, the the moment I was less in need of was, oh, look, yet another show has found a way to, to add in cannibalism. Yeah, there's a lot of cannibalism on TV lately, huh? Yeah, it's like uh, Zombies Mark II. Uh, well, this show also has zombies. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so what wins your week in genre? Uh, between the two of them, I'll give it to Game of Thrones, if only because, uh, you know, I've been reading a lot about how the show is made, and I I do, as much as I'm worried about my growing indifference toward the show, I, I, am, imp- I am impressed at the scope of the production. I didn't realize that both the D- the DP for a bunch of the show and Ma- and Michelle McLaren are Canadian. Um, but I don't know how I didn't know, especially the second bit, but the, you know, it costs 6 million an episode, which is kind of insane. And, uh, it's a weird thing to praise, but I, it's nice to see the, the medium expand in ways that allows for productions this insanely huge and ambitious. And I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that other networks and companies take a chance on just huge insane gambles like i mean this could have been such a disaster and the fact that it's turned into a phenomenon instead is pretty cool as much as i have my misgivings about it well fair enough and uh if you want to hear more game of thrones talk like i said check out the sound site game of thrones podcast but for me i'm going to give the weekend genre to hannibal as much as i did enjoy this game of thrones premiere it's i'm I'm full on the Hannibal train right now, so uh, that's that. That had to win the week in, t- in genre for me. Now we'll take a break and come back with the dramas. drama i'm going to preview fargo and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, red road uh, elementary turn uh, parenthood justified and the american so first i wanted to preview fargo i've seen the first four episodes and uh the the big question i feel like a lot of people are going to be asking about fargo is uh, does it how does it feel in relation to the film does it justify itself does it you know does it feel like a retread and uh does it make somehow like tarnish the the film and of course not Fargo is an amazing film I love it so much and while this is not you know Fargo the movie it doesn't feel like it really suffers in comparison for me yet uh and it also it feels it's definitely the same world the same idea but they do a couple things uh in the first couple episodes to to distance it from that that I think are, are very helpful I really like Billy Bob Thornton I, he does a really good job uh, in in the, in the four episodes I've seen. Martin Freeman is more mixed. I'm a big fan of him in general. However, uh, his accent wanders somewhat. It, it mostly stays American, but sometimes it's Minnesotan and sometimes it's it's not. So that was distracting. But even more distracting for me was his physicality, which does not immediately match 
the character he's in. He feels too Watsony from Sherlock. He feels too he feels too um even though he's he's a shorter or smaller person than for example Billy Bob Thornton, uh he he feels too physically competent in in some of his scenes to really make me fully connect with that character right away. So that improves over the course of the, of the four episodes. And I think he's doing some good work uh, and people will probably really enjoy the performance. But at first it was a little, it was a bit distracting for me in the, at least the first two episodes, there is a female sheriff deputy kind of character who is She's not Marge, which is obviously that's a good move, but they have to, they haven't done a good enough job of separating her from Marge in my book. Uh, and so while I enjoy that character and the performance, it feels a bit distracting because if you're going to have a character like this, why isn't it Marge? You know, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get it. It's a different thing, but it's not a specific enough character yet for me to, uh, to, for it to feel like it's not Marge light or who Marge will, or who, you know, somebody who will become a Marge later in, when she's more confident in her career. So there, there's, you know, there's some touches there that are, are not as, maybe not as coherent or as successful as we, we might hope, but there's a lot to really enjoy about this, uh, this series. I, I look forward to Key and Peele popping up. They, they do not pop up in the first four episodes, so just don't expect them. Uh, but, but in general, I really enjoy these episodes, and I, I think it'll be... I think it'll be fun. So if you're worried about uh, it tarnishing the original, it doesn't do that. If you're worried, uh, if, if you're curious as to why does it, why, like, why remake Fargo, uh, mostly it's because you, know, you get to see Billy Bob Thornton be really great and you get to have fun in this world. And I I think that's enough to justify a show. Uh, do you have any questions about Fargo? Uh, not really. Uh, I mean, I mean, I'm sure that Bob Odenkirk is good. Uh, those are things that I'm not worried about. Uh, it's got a great cast. I I think that there's still. I mean, I'm I'm in general I'm excited about the prospect of more miniseries, more limited run series, uh, attracting bigger, uh, you know, attracting big talent. The, I would like for more of them to not be based on pre-existing material. But if they, I mean, I feel like with that length, you can't not expand it just by virtue of having 13 hours to play with. So I'm, I'm very curious to see if they do manage to, uh, to go for some more radical departure later on. I think I'll just leave it with this. There's, there's a lot to enjoy. Don't, you know, don't go in expecting to have your mind blown, uh, in general, particularly, you know, give Martin Freeman a couple weeks to really get into this new character. And I think people will be, will be pleased with it. It it also, it looks great. It, It looks lovely. The, the photography in, um, you know it, it, the snow and everything. It looks very nice, and there's there's a lot to to enjoy about about Fargo. So we'll talk more about it next week. Uh, but I, I wanted to mention that here. We'll talk more about that in a couple weeks when it premieres. But uh, I wanted to mention you know mention it this week. Uh, the Red Road finished up its its first six episode season this past week, and uh, it's it's an odd bird uh, somewhat because you have. These really successful character beats, particularly, uh, you know, we're big fans of her, but Julianne Nicholson once again gets some really good material and is is relaxed in you know and comfortable in a character in this this episode in a way that we haven't seen her really get to be, at least that I haven't yet. Uh, certainly not on you know with a character as internal and as um, 
as stern as as the her character on Masters of Sex and some of the other you know characters she's more known for. So I really enjoyed her in this finale. Momoa continues to be incredibly compelling uh, and and charismatic in his role. But about half of this episode is interesting character beats, and half of it is trying to be like an action packed, you know, twisting thrill kind of you know adrenaline kind of cop show, and that's. They, they, those two things require very different pacing, very different structure. So, uh, you know, I, I think the show needs to decide if it's going to go the, more the, the rectify route or if it's going to go the 24 route and not try to do both of them. Yeah, that sounds headache inducing, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's not bad. The action sequences that we get this week work uh, pretty well. I like the way that things come together, but it just sort of ends. The season sort of just ends and it doesn't feel like a particular... It, it feels like the first chunk of the season was a different show and then the, the very end of the season is like the show wanted to be something else. So I'm a little confused about what the show's trying to be. Um, that being said, there are some some nice character beats and moments that 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 work, and I'm glad I, I'm glad I watched the the season for for what it's worth. Uh, Elementary, I wanted to mention because I am still watching it, and I just love I love the rapport between Lucy Liu and Johnny Lee Miller on this show. There, I, I tweeted this out this week. I think that's the best platonic relationship on TV right now. It's just wonderful to watch. I love the respect the two characters have for each other. I love the the way that the show treats them and uh, is interested in both of them as individuals while also in, and their friendship but not feeling like it needs to define uh the show as look at these two buddies who fight and then they make up and then you know it's it's just these are who these two people are and they're supportive of each other they let each other be themselves and it's just wonderful to see so way to go elementary i'm fully on board with elementary right now and more people should be talking about it let's move on to the pilot of turn the new revolutionary war spy drama on amc simon is this the next uh low winter sun is this the next walking dead is this the next mad men or something else entirely I wouldn't say it's any of those, uh, it, but it's definitely not. I mean, how long has it been since uh, it's been four years since or five years since Walking Dead premiered? And since then, AMC has been looking for another either a, a hit or at least uh, something for critics to latch on to. And I don't think this is going to be either one of those things. It's definitely not as bad as Low Winter Sun because nothing is as hilariously terrible as Low Winter Sun was. But it's not particularly compelling. It really did not need an extended length pilot. It didn't feel like uh, this really dragged. Maybe it was just because it seemed like there was a ton of commercials, um, especially after that first 15 minute block or whatever. But uh, man, this, I mean, I love Jamie Bell. I think he's a fantastic actor. He's been doing great work over the last few years and stuff uh, from David Gordon Green's Undertoad all the way up to even Nymphomaniac just recently. But um and I think that his character uh, is isn't is potentially interesting, and it's it's a good performance and all that. But yeah, I, don't, I, I think the main problem is uh, you know I was praising Silicon Valley earlier for its sense of specificity, and here you know despite the fact that you've got a potentially a really interesting setting, you know 1776, uh, you know insurgent United States, the, you know you should be able to do. Uh, really interesting stuff with that. And instead, you just kind of have the sense of 
the British are very sneering and evil, and the rebels are slightly less sneering and evil. And that's kind of it. Uh, I just I feel like they they need to do a whole lot more to to make these sides feel distinct and interesting and not just sort of these are the baddies these are the less baddies and we know who wins and that's kind of it well there's so much potential in this story and i do agree uh with their tagline the untold story of you know what this is the story that does feel pretty much untold most of the depictions i've seen at least of the revolutionary war are very american biased uh yeah i haven't seen a depiction of the revolutionary war that isn't obviously on the side of the americans and that you know the nuance that could be there it, it would be very interesting to see explored and but we don't, we don't get that we don't get that here uh but it it also doesn't feel you know it doesn't feel jingoistic in a way that i appreciate there it isn't like i, I think the whether or not it's successful i do think they're actively choosing to show that the bo both sides are using people both sides are they're more even or equal than usually what we see because usually it's the noble americans fighting against those terrible british um so so that feels like a choice and maybe it's l making the show less distinct and less interesting or less um less uh individualized each of the, the characters less individualized but i do think that's actually something i appreciate you know not falling into that same familiar uh tonal setup or, or, or character character beats there of the americans versus the british but uh yeah i think that the trouble with this is that this could be a pilot for a show that goes on to become much more interesting and uh, much more nuanced and actually just a, you know given the setting given you know many of the cast members that you know we're fans of jamie bell is just one of many familiar faces for at least genre fans but this episode by itself is not enough to get me hugely intrigued about the show and there's no huge positive buzz encouraging me that it's that it gets better in the next few weeks well and and there's nothing there's no future developments that are signaled in this episode that are interesting at all to me yeah there's the the episode by itself the the action scenes are fine the 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 bits of character we get with the father and the son i mean it's a bit heavy-handed the whole fathers and sons stuff but you know but we've also seen a lot worse let's be honest no we've definitely seen worse and we've seen worse on amc but i think we're i think it's just disappointing because because there is so much potential there is a lot of potential with this cast and or at least you know some of the cast with and with this premise but like for instance the whole love square don't need it Really, 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 really don't need it. Yeah. The the Revolutionary War was a time, much like the Civil War, was a very divisive and very personal struggle for a lot of people. When you have the, the Tories and the, the separationists or the, the rebels, you know, the, these are, these were wars that split families and, and really were very personal in a way that... In America, we usually do our fighting somewhere over there. Uh, and so to, to see that explored, I think, has a lot of potential. But we don't see that potential here. Yeah. Uh, last note, I appreciate that if you're doing a pilot, you want to do exposition in a, in a, in a rather, in, a, in an unobtrusive way. I appreciate that they try to do that differently. But you know how not to do it is uh, that scene we get between Abraham's father and one of the British baddies about 
his about his the situation with his uh, former fiance and her husband explaining yeah. the whole backstory. No, I appreciate that you tried, but that was not how you do that. Well, I just would have not given him that entanglement. We don't need it. There's enough interesting stuff going on here that we don't need another love quadrangle. No, we really don't. Yeah. Uh, let's move on, though, to Parenthood uh, Cold Feet. My review for this is up and sound on site. And as I tweeted out this week, I, I had to go back after I was about two or three paragraphs in because I had written finally, the word finally, at least four times in two paragraphs. So much of this episode felt like everything that should have been happening five episodes ago, but they had 22 episodes to fill the season. Uh, and so they had to stretch everything out. I liked a lot of this episode, but mostly it just kind of confirms for me why wasn't all of this happening in January? Unfortunately, I missed Parenthood this week, but I'm just going to guess uh, if you're saying finally, did they sell the house? Signed the paperwork. There we go. Uh, did uh, Sarah and Hank finally do anything? We we got uh, Sarah's reason reasoning for why she's upset with him and why they're not back together. And we got Hank talking to her about it. Yeah. All right. Good. Um, I mean, that was, those were the major sticking points for me. Drew uh, had it out with his roommate. His roommate forced him. To, he went back to school and his roommate made him talk to him about uh, why he was upset. And they, they hashed that out. Well, that's nice. The, but yeah. the label exists again. The charter school is going forward. Uh, wait, uh, wait, we're we're still doing that? We're still doing that. But, you know, they, they dropped that for several weeks. Julia is uh, moving on. And not with Ed. Yeah, I saw that. They very unsubtly uh, promised that in the promo. <laughs> yeah, so it's just it's a lot of developments that should have been happening quite a while ago. But that being said, I did enjoy the episode, and I look forward to the last two of the season. Uh, let's talk about Justified Starvation. Sure. Uh, as you know, I review Justified on the site, and uh, I saw other people being very positive on the episode. I was also positive on the episode, uh, but probably not to the same extent. The uh, the op the cold open with Win bo boasting of how he killed Boyd was pretty great, uh, and there was a few other really great scenes in there as well. I think the 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 strength of the episode is that it refocused on the core relationships of the show, or what should be the core relationships that we've sort of lost track of. So we have scenes with uh, with Raylan and Boyd, and with Raylan and Ava, who have had almost no screen time together in the last three seasons, which is kind of insane when you think about it. Um, and those scenes were all great, and I think they portend good things for next year because you you know that you know it's it's the end. They're going to have to refocus on those things. Uh, so that stuff was all great. The rest was kind of the usual mishmash, and it's still coming down to Raylan versus Daryl, which there's maybe a couple interesting ways that could play out, and a lot of less interesting ones. So I'm still kind of iffy. Yeah the the episode had some nice touches I, and again i like that as i was predicting a couple weeks ago i like how much of this is coming down to kendall and uh and that those relationships the the opening scene was fun but it didn't really work for me just because it was so obvious i mean like yes clearly they didn't kill off the main character well no you're not supposed to think that they did but it's it's just fun to watch jer burns be squirmy yeah i guess uh, i i don't know i like him better in competent mode as opposed to in squirmy mode uh, and so I, I had more fun with him when he was you know, getting to spend his scenes with mary steenburgen uh last week 
But uh, I, I absolutely agree. The scene with Ava and, and Raylan was fantastic. You know, it's nice when the show calls back to its series memory, thinking about where they were in season one and where they are now. It's very interesting. Um, and, you know, there's just, yeah, I also saw the praise for this episode. And while I enjoyed it, I just am not fully on, on board um, yet. It's fine, it's fun, but I don't feel engaged in the way that I feel like I should, and a lot of that is because Raylan doesn't seem like he's particularly engaged until the very end of the episode. Yeah, I think that's something they're going to have to address uh, in the finale and next year. At first, I was indulging, and I talked about this in my review, I at first I was indulging the idea that they're going to fridge Ava next week, which I think no. still could do uh, but it's it's very clear that the writers have a lot of affection for the character, and as much as her something terrible happening to Ava would be dynamite motivation for Raylan v. Boyd next season, I just don't see them being willing to go that way with it. Which I think is ultimately for the best because that's a that's a plot point we've seen more than often enough that it has a, its own TV trope page. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like every I feel like the end of at the end of every, every season I say, yeah, Ava might be a goner, but and, and then it never <laughs> happens, so I'm just going to stop saying it. Yeah, I, they're not going to kill Ava, I don't think until the, at, at least until they let her have another scene with with Boyd and they're not going to kill Boyd because that's what next season's going to be about. Uh so, you know, I I'm just sort of as much as I enjoy the show, I'm very glad to have watched it. I always love spending time in the world of Justified. I'm kind of waiting for this season to finish so that next season can start. Yeah, that that being said, uh, you know, they're four for four on fantastic finales so far. Uh, mind you, they were also four for four on fantastic seasons. So we'll see. I, I, I would not be surprised if they pulled out a really great finale out of their hats. There's still interesting ways for the story to go in theory. And I do think that Raylan's gamble with Kendall's life is an interesting one. That being said, we'll see, I guess. I'm I'm just, I'm kind of, I'm just waiting, just waiting to see. Yep. Uh, well, let's move on to the Americans behind the red door. You wanted to spotlight this one. I was less uh, interested in spotlighting it. Why? Uh, we, we defaulted to less praise, as we often do on the Televerse, rather than over an overabundance. Uh, what, what did you uh, love about this episode, and why is it spotlight worthy for you? You know why? Uh, I'll give you one word. It's a word I haven't word. It's a fake word that I haven't heard anyone use in a while, but I feel like uh, bringing it back up uh, in the context of the Americans, and that's sex position. Um, the idea, or you know, as a portmanteau for the idea that we can use sex scenes to demonstrate things about character, which they kind of do on Game of Thrones, and in in some cases have done that in interesting ways. But I feel like the way that the Americans use a sex kind of shames the way a lot of other shows use it. For instance, uh, this week, you know, I love the way that we have two or three scenes earlier, earlier on in the episode where, uh, where Elizabeth is sort of prodding Philip about his sex life with Martha and what Clark is like. And it's funny and it's cute and all those things, etc. And the way that that builds and we get to that scene and it's actually quite horrific in a, in a way uh, was totally unexpected to me at least and uh, so well performed and says so much about the toll 
that is being taken on these characters by their double or triple or quadruple lives and the way that their attempt to create a private sphere is complicated by their layers and layers of deception and the, the sort of toxic elements that can come out of that and also the way that calls back to her uh, to Elizabeth's rather uh, former sexual assault which I know we weren't necessarily uh, huge fans of as a, as a plot point when it first came up but the way it calls back to that and also the way it calls back to how she used that in her manipulation of the sailor a couple weeks ago I think all that stuff is endlessly fascinating uh, and that alone to me was was a reason to spotlight this episode. I absolutely agree, and I specifically I, I, I specifically appreciate the mention uh, of her assaults, and I like that the show doesn't mention it. it. Trusts you to remember that from the first season, and uh, that that's a, such an important part of what that scene is, and you know the 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 notion of Elizabeth you know, being intrigued by this notion of her husband being, you know, a, a sexual animal, not realizing that, of course, she's a very different person than uh, Martha is. So, of course, she's going to respond very differently to being treated in in that way. She's That's not sexy to her. Uh, and so the the representation of that, I thought, was really interesting and really well done. And... Uh, for me, I'm I'm less connecting it with their their work as as spies and more just with, uh, yeah, I I liked that they explored this element because you'd think jealousy would have to come up at some point, and they haven't. It hasn't really because uh, you know, they both know what the job is and you know what they do, and they both seem to have made peace with that. And I like that the show doesn't waste any time on that, but instead they explore that through this prism, and it's really successful. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even think about it as a as a jealousy issue. I just more thought about it as uh, their way of trying to become more intimate, sort of more normal in a way, even though there's absolutely nothing normal about what's going on. Um, I, I continue to like the stuff we get with Paige. Henry seems to have kind of disappeared. Uh, I'm assuming he's going to come back at some point, but I'm cool with it for now. If they can't think of anything interesting for him to do, then he shouldn't be there. Um, that's always a good way to go. I, I like the stuff also that the scenes we get with the Sandinista, I forget her name right now. Um, but, uh, I thought that was all appropriately hard to watch and as sort of an interesting mirror for, uh, Elizabeth as well. I'm still waiting for them to give, uh, Nina a little bit more to do. She's, she's a bit of a pawn right now, but I'm, I'm sure she's going to come roaring back soon enough. Yeah, I also like what we get with Claudia this week. I like that we get a little... I, I have the sense this is the last we'll see of her this season because of the Millers. Fi you, the nah. Millers. <laughs> but I did like her scene with uh, with Elizabeth quite a, quite a bit. Um, uh, you mentioned sex position earlier, and I feel like to, I feel like I need to draw a distinction here. The reason that this is so much more successful for us is that this, to me, isn't sex position because this is sex to demonstrating things about the characters like you said i feel like sex position is using sex to distract while you get told a bunch of plot as a as opposed to character and right yeah you know that's such an important distinction and that's a, that's why this episode you know and the the treatment of of our leads and their relationship is so is so effective and you know that that you can have a, you know, sexually explicit scenes like this and have it feel not sexy at all and then have it feel not, you know, exploitative, but in the way that they're going for not, 
you know, when, when they have Carrie Russell naked and they have Matthew Reese fully clothed, normally I'd be the first person going, hey, why is the woman the naked one and the guy is fully... But in this context, it makes sense for the characters and it tells us about them more than mm-hmm. and, and where their relationship is at right now more than anything else. Yeah, and, and the fact... I, I love that we get those one or two, like, very tender scenes of uh, of sexuality and then have it sort of come up very harsh, very harshly against what we get later. Uh, you mentioned Claudia, and I just, and I wanted to point out that it should be awkward that we've got this, that she's you know got this replacement, Kate, um, and that she's, she's sort of pooching up the show. But I actually like the character and the performance. I like that moment we get with her and Philip in the bar. They're sort of fleshing her out in in little subtle ways that I've been enjoying, and uh, it's also been fun watching uh, Beeman. Uh, get in a tight spot and just have absolutely no idea what to do. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, sir, what was your week in drama? Uh, definitely giving it to the Americans. Uh, oh, lastly, I wanted to mention uh, Gad and his home life, and getting a window into that was also fascinating. Yeah, I always appreciate when they flush out those uh, more periphery characters, and yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I also agree I'm going to give it to the Americans this week. So a few show notes before we go to our DVD shelf with Noel Kirkpatrick of TV.com, uh, talking about Fulikiti. Our outro music is Sweet Petite by the Bicycles. You can find a post up at soundonsite.org for this episode where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You you can also like us on Facebook to follow the goings on at Sound Outside TV. And I'm back to actually posting things. So the Televerse at Facebook is actually active again. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, you can also email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. We have an M4A feed and MP3 feed up in iTunes uh, where you can leave us a rating or a review. We'd very much appreciate any feedback you have. It does help other people find the show when we get more ratings and reviews. So we'd appreciate a few moments of your time to rate the show there. You can also follow us on Twitter. I am at the Televerse, and you are at Sucker Howl. And Simon, what's our question of the week? Uh, I'm going to throw this out there. With no regard to reality or uh, or anything that CBS might actually do, who would you want to see take Letterman's spot? My answer, don't ask me why, is Harry Dean Stanton. Okay, that sounds interesting. Oh, man. Or Hannibal Buress. I could go for that, too. Okay. Hmm. You know, I don't know if she could... Oh, I know. I know. I was going to say someone else, but I... Samantha B. Ooh, good answer. I would love to see Samantha B in there. Uh, it's not going to happen, but man, that would be. If we're going to have a, a, you know, one of the alums of the Daily Show, that's who I would go to, personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah I could see that. Uh, if, she, if she wants to throw in uh, Jessica Williams, also. That was my first thought, but you know what, Jessica Williams, she's still a little, you know, comparatively, she's much more green than than. That's uh, true. Than yeah, B. Yeah, Samantha so. B definitely has the chops. Yeah. Yeah, let us know who you who your pick is. That's a great question. Uh, so now we'll take a break and listen to a clip and some music and come back with Noel Kirkpatrick to talk freakily. Nothing really special ever happens here. In this place. School sucks. My dad's a weirdo. And there's my brother's girlfriend. I don't even know what to say about her. Anyway, life was pretty slow. Until she Next thing I knew, I had things coming out of my head. It's weird, not normal. These horns sticking out. And I had a robot living in my house. And well, a bunch of other weird stuff. I don't care. But that alien girl, 
This is Kate Kalzik, joined as ever by Simon Howell, and this week on the DVD Shelf, we are taking yet another dive into anime. I say yet another, this is our fourth anime series that we're looking at at the DVD Shelf, and uh, this time it's Fulikuli, and joining us from TV.com is Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, what made you want to talk about Fulikuli? I think it's one of those just really fun shows, and um, I've always really enjoyed it. And when I watched it again to prep for this, I was reminded about how much I enjoyed it. So I was, and I haven't really talked about this show in a while. So it was a nice chance to revisit it. Well, it's one of those series. I mean, I had a roommate in college who was a big fan of this series, so I was familiar with it. I'm pretty sure I watched it at some point. Uh, But it's it's a very manageable show because when I think anime. I never think, oh, it's six episodes. But that's the case with Fulikuli. I, I like that it subverts, at least as a very, very, very novice anime appreciator, I, I like that it subverts some of my expectations of, of what I expected anime to be, you know, that short running time, as well as uh, absolutely steering into the skit on some other things and uh, just generally being insane uh this is such an odd and uh in in a a positive way in a good way but also for me at times in a frustrating way but this is also just it's such a weird show (laughs) and i love how if you google fulikuli uh for those who don't know this is spelled f-l-c-l all caps that's the name of the show four letters um the thing that will come up for message boards is what does it mean and what the hell happens? And uh, I, I love that about the show. Uh, Simon, were you familiar with Fulikuli? I not. I definitely heard of it. It's quite notorious in a lot of circles, in a good way. I definitely heard of it. I'd not seen one frame of it. And, w- I mean, I don't want to say that you're overselling the weirdness. I, I don't think you are. But I think for me, you know, this is our, like, 92nd or 93rd series shelf that we're recording today. And it's nice to watch a series like Foodie Cootie. And at a certain point, mid-episode one, you just realize that as a Western viewer, especially someone who, you know, in my case, I've probably seen a little bit more anime than you, but not much. Um, You know, at a certain point, you just get to surrender to it and just say, you know what? There are so many in-jokes and, you know, aesthetic references and 
sort of cultural biases at work here that, you know, I probably could get if I worked really, really hard, but I had a much better time just sort of surrendering to it and just saying, you know what, I'm just going to coast on this one. I'm just going to enjoy the insanity and the energy and not spend too much energy sort of trying to pick it apart because I, I, I'm, I'm sure that every single decision that's been made has been made for a reason. If if, if only, uh, I'm sure some of the time that reason is because we can. Pretty much, uh, yeah. If not all the time. But, um, but, you know, for me, I just had more fun giving myself over to it. That's very interesting that you say that. I think it's interesting because one of the things I tweeted out I think like mid episode one, maybe around episode two was that I, here's the thing. I don't speak anime. <laughs> I, I have no trouble with subtitles. I love plenty of shows that have subtitles and films and all of that. I have no, no problem with, with the genre as a whole. This show, I'm just watching this going, this is not for me. And I don't understand it, but I understand that lots of other people love this show. And um, and actually, interestingly enough, by the time you know, so I was just watching this going like, I'm sure there is much here that I am not understanding. It kind of made me want to call up my old roommate and uh, just get, you know, a little bit of what am I missing that is, makes this show so beloved. But uh, by the by the last episode, I actually really enjoyed the last episode. Uh, and I felt like, oh, it, I, after having seen the last episode of the season or the series, I needed to then go back and watch the whole thing again. And then, you know, because it ha it's much more accessible that last episode than the rest of the series is for me to dive in with the show. My main the main thing that or criticism that I would lob at the show is also what I think for many people is one of its biggest strengths. And that's that this is about a 12 year old boy. And so when I'm watching the series and everything is about sex Everything is phallic imagery. <laughs> Everything is about sex. After, like, not even the first half-hour episode, not, you know, not even by the end of that episode, I was watching this going, okay, I get it. He, everything's about sex. Can we move on? Is that, is that just me? I thought you were, I thought you, you meant that in the sense of everything is about sex and he's 12 and gross. Well, I mean, I know for some 12-year-old boys, and, you know, especially, certainly for teenagers, dot, dot, dot. So I was wondering if that was if you guys felt a, an accurate representation of, of where you thought the character was supposed to be at or if it was jarring or if, if I was not connecting with it because obviously I'm not going to have that 12 year old boy experience. Well, it's possible, but I think it's also it's about Nata's adolescence, of course, but I think there's also other things going on. I mean, you're dealing with Mamimi's um, inability to cope with uh, Nata's uh, brother going off to the States and how she's transferring those affections onto her. And she's in high school. So That's I think there's so weird. <laughs> oh, you didn't pick up on that? No, no, I know it's that oh. I absolutely picked up on that, but oh, I think okay. it's totally weird that his, that, that his, uh, her boyfriend goes off to play ba baseball in America. Uh, and so she, and so therefore I'm assuming is out of high school and is at the very least in college. And she's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to transfer my longing for my boyfriend onto his 12 year old brother. Yeah. She's unstable. I mean, she's set <laughs> fires to things. I mean, she's not the most stable person and she doesn't have any other friends either. And as the series progresses, she loses all of her friends. And that's why we get the big climax that we have. It's her fault mm -hmm. that we have that huge climax. Well, and I would say that, you know, it, it's a little bit unfair to say that it's all about sex. I think if you were to, if I, if I don my, uh, if I don my theme cap, 
I would say that yes, sex is part of it, but I think uh, in a broader sense, there is there is the theme of you know men ha like men and boys having to find ways to uh, you know struggling with socialization and, and struggling with how to interact with women, which is not only about sex, but also you know when is it appropriate to express yourself sexually or you know in, in terms of affection, which is something that our lead character struggles with mightily, mostly because. Uh, you know, two of his three objects of affection, if you want to put it that way. Uh, you know, one of them is an alien with nefarious motives, and the other one is 20 years old. And then the other one that is interested in him really... He's a little bit psychotic. ...to play together. <laughs> so everyone's kind of like trying to figure out the best way to socialize with one another, and they all have different competing agendas. So it kind of comes up as like a sex comedy sort of thing, but there's enough, I think, befuddled innocence, I think is maybe the best word that's going on, is that no one's really quite sure exactly what they're doing, except for Haruko, who knows exactly what she's doing. Well, and there is plenty else going on. There's the common themes of, uh, of corporations and uh, stamping out free will and mechanization, and there's there's many other themes in this. Uh, just the the consistent, like the, the angle, the the direction. I always don't know if, what the right terminology necessarily is in in animation, but uh, the the shots that they choose and the every. Every time we see a woman's lips, they're pouting, they're wet, and they are in an O every single time. I mean, they're just the the animation styles and the focus. I'm guessing because it's putting us into our lead character's point of view and in his mind, it feels very sexualized uh, and completely inappropriate from time to time. Uh, but I do think it does lend to the overall feel of the show, which I you know doesn't feel unaccurate to a 12 year old's ex experience well you also i mean again i'm a i'm a total anime dilettante but i find it interesting the way that yes sometimes that stuff is there to serve the themes other times it's just there seemingly for fan service like you know this is something that comes up a lot in anime of course but the many 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 uh upskirt shots which for a six episode series there is got to be at least six dozen of them I don't think there are six dozens. I mean, there's a, there's quite a few, but I mean, there are significantly more in lots of other series. I think comparatively, FLCL, sorry, uh, Furry Curry just kind of restrains itself in what it could do for more phallic humor with horns and such. <laughs> well, do we want to talk about that? Uh, Noel, you, you pick the show. You give the plot synopsis. <laughs> uh, um, no, sure. Um how much of a plot synopsis do you want? <laughs> I don't know. Well, in case there are any listeners out there who want to know what the show is about, there's an sure. alien. She hits a boy on the head with a guitar. Yes. She, um, Wait a minute. Does she hit him with the guitar or with the Vespa? I was confused. She with the Vespa that. and then with the guitar. Right. Yeah, that's right. So, no. So, um, Haruko is an alien, maybe a police maybe a policewoman of some sort on an intergalactic scale. It's not totally clear and it doesn't really matter that much. Uh, but she's looking for this energy or this space pirate called Atomisk. And she's trying to, it's supposedly, I think, supposed to be in that big iron building that belongs to the Medical Mechanica building. And she's using men's heads and hitting them with her space guitar 
to basically pull things out from that building through like a portal because we'll see an x-ray that Nauda just has a big black hole where his brain should be. And she's trying to get Atomisk out of the brains. And she's done this before, like, and she's tried to do this in the past and it hasn't worked out very well for her. So this is her chance to finally get Atomisk out. And then we're dealing with Nauta coping with all this weirdness around him, even though he's actually pretty fine with all the weirdness. It's the fact that his family now has a robot that came out of his head and he, and he's worried about the neighbors thinking that's weird. Everything else is kind of okay with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, except for the, I mean, the, the main issue that I can see with his home life is that his dad is not a very good father. <laughs> Yes, that's that's pretty clear. There, there's this theme of maturity and uh, our lead wanting to be an adult, wanting to be an adult, and then that's c contrasted with the adults around him acting like idiots or children uh, consistently. So, so there there are many uh, examples of like there's this sort of un, at least from my very puritan american comparative uh perspective you have the 20 year old living with the 12 year old and the i'm guessing 30 40 something year old and uh theoretically uh making advances on either of them or being assumed to be coupled with both of them you know there's there, there's a lot of uh sex farce in this as yeah. well as uh just from from the dad you're you're getting more information than you maybe would want, including discussion of what uh, flickerty actually means. And it doesn't mean anything. It's just a silly nonsense word. It's a silly nonsense word, but I enjoy that uh, when you look it up online, there are so many people who are absolutely convinced that it means basically groping a woman. Well, that's like the, I think that's largely based on the hand gestures that the grandfather makes during the manga sequence. Mm -hmm. It very much looks like he's playing with breasts almost. And I think that's where a lot of that comes from. Well, yes, but then it's used many other times, especially yeah, in that last yeah. episode. It's clearly a nonsense word. Yeah. Yeah, I think in the first or second episode, we actually get an explicit definition that has to do with the syndrome that's going on inside uh, our lead's head. Am I incorrect? I think it's like one of the references that they make to kind of explain it. But I also think it just becomes this weird innuendo-laden word that just yeah. ends up not having any meaning, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. Well, and the the other aspect of the show that we sort of have shortchanged is the fact that, and I wouldn't call it a musical series exactly, but it definitely has kind of like a rock and roll high school vibe to it. Right. Where, uh, you know, our our characters battle with guitars, which, but if, if nothing else, the series is a love letter to how much fun it is to hit things with guitars. I highly recommend if you've never had the experience of smashing an electric guitar, you should definitely buy a used one for really, really cheap just to smash it. It's really fun. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a, a lot of there's so much energy to the series and, and yeah. uh, whimsy as well that it really uh, it, it's infectious when you're watching it. Yeah, no, it's it's one of the things like I saw this shortly after it got licensed here in the us and if you're not familiar with it um when anime was like first hitting dvds and such um furry curry actually just came out two episodes to a disc initially <laughs> and discs were like 30 bucks so you were paying 30 bucks for two episodes of a show um 
And it was one of those cases where a friend of mine had it and he only had the first two episodes. So we'd watch that and then I'd be like, well, what happens? And he's just like, I don't have the money to go buy the other two. They're too expensive. And I don't think I actually finished seeing the series until Cartoon Network started airing it. And they didn't actually have to edit it too heavily, as I recall, which is insane. Um, so I think it's just one of the pleasures I had when I watched it was just how delightfully weird and postmodern and self-reflexive it was. It's so much aware of the fact that it's using these postmodern things to tell a story and calling attention to it, that it just, it's really exciting, I think. And it's very aware of where it's positioned at that particular space and time. I mean, just think about all the like the weird Matrix bullet point riffs that they do about the slow motion and that they actually didn't do that. The actors cut to them saying, oh, well, I just did that in slow motion myself. I didn't realize that was a special effect. <laughs> well, it almost feels like like a precursor to some of the Adult Swim stuff that came later. Like what was the what was the original year of production? Um, it originally aired in uh, 2000 and 2001. Yeah, so across so it, across that span, and then I think it started airing on Cartoon Network in two thousand three. Right, and it definitely feels like the sort of thing that some of the creatives over at Adult Swim took took certain uh, certain cues from. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean, if you want like a kind of a weird like um, follow up to that, I mean, Tsunami's current run of Space Dandy kind of goes for that same vibe, though I would argue not nearly as successfully. When I was watching it, also particularly appreciate the art style because mm -hmm. in, in that first episode, even it's not what I'm expecting. Where I, I'm, you know, having seen the, the other animes that we covered for the DVD shelf, so that was uh, Ghost in the Shell and Robotech and Cowboy Bebop, as well as a, a smattering of other ones. I wasn't prepared for it to so frequently shift its visual style not just when it goes into manga which is fun i particularly enjoyed the reference to that in the last episode when they switched to manga and like that's, oh that's one of the best scenes in the whole series for sure oh it's the, delightful the way you can actually see mysterious figures carrying the manga slides away is fantastic yeah but but then even just the the amount of detail or not in the in the background of, of scenes outside of our main characters uh now to sometimes just doesn't have eyes you know, there's a lot of creativity to the the art in this series, and in a different way than in these other anime series we've talked about on the DVD shelf. Well, I think one of the things to point out is that um, Gainax is actually a fairly small studio compared to some of the other things that you've watched. Um, you've done Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex, with, which was done by Production IG, and they're huge. And Production IG actually did some of the animation for Furry Curry, actually, so it was a split production for them. And then you've done Cowboy Bebop, which was done through Sunrise, I think. And then Robotech, which is, I can't remember who did Robotech. Um, so it's just, Gainax has a significantly smaller budget and they're known for running out of money. They actually had to delay the airing of the last episode because they didn't have time to complete it. Um, so they're just known for running out of money and they just, they have typically a much smaller budget and they're more willing to experiment as well. It's part of their like, MO basically is that they started off as like this fan group that then turned themselves into an animation studio. I mean, if you've ever seen Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is yeah, this is them. It's the same studio. Well, and and uh, eventually, 
an, an Evangelion shelf will happen, but the way that series ran out of money is legendary. Yeah, and Evangelion happened um, before this. So, I mean, they even mentioned Evangelion in this series because Naoto's dad wrote a book about e Eva. One of the things I, I really appreciate is that awareness of of other anime and of, obviously, the, the we've already mentioned the meta elements, but one of the things I appreciate about Naoto is around episode, what is that, four or five He's talking about how awesome it is that he turns into a massive robot and saves the world, and that's some. And, and I really appreciate that these that this does feel like a kid who is aware of of how bizarre everything around him is, which is not necessarily something I've seen in the the anime that I've watched. I think that may be the number one complaint actually about Evangelion is that the characters are just so perennially whiny and upset with their situation, whereas Naoko. Uh, actually has to struggle with the fact that he that it's so awesome and he sort of has to restrain himself. Yeah, no, I've, it's, a, it's a nice little subversion of the standard mecha genre where most of the time the pilot is kind of unwilling or is willing but not very good at it and has to grow and become better but only becomes better through tragic loss. And in this case, it's more so, well, I get swallowed by a robot and it's kind of cool that I'm able to protect these people, and it gives me the confidence to basically tell this woman I love her and come to grips with who I am and who the people are around me. So it's actually a it's really nice subversion, I think, of some of the more standard mecha tropes. And I, say, and I have to say, for a 12-year-old, he's remarkably composed about the whole getting pooped out uh, portion of that event. <laughs> Ah, oh, delightful. Do we have other <laughs> characters we want to discuss a little bit? During this rewatch, I was actually struck by how much I was trying to pay attention to Nina Mori, who's his uh, female classmate and the class president, and her story, because it's just one of those things where she's like one of the few characters who actually gets to change visually on the show, which I thought was really interesting, because she gets a haircut, she gets different glasses, she's basically the only one who gets new clothes throughout everyone else typically has the same kind of clothes on but she gets new clothes every episode and i think part of that the director i think mentioned on the commentary track that the animation director just really liked the character so he kept giving her new clothes but it also speaks to the fact that she's one to trying to come maturing the quickest i think compared to everyone else and coming to grips with who she is. And I think that's just really fascinating as a nice contrast and foil to now to struggle to figure out who he is and where he fits into everything. Yeah, and it, it kind of helps to sort of counterbalance the uh, 12, hormonal 12-year-old 12 aspect that I think uh, bothers Kate. Uh, the fact that she's the only character who seems to actually evolve. Even at the end of the series, uh, it's debatable whether or not uh, our our hero has really learned anything, but she's actually seems to have grown up and come to terms with her home situation and 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 how she socializes, and, and that whole thing happens over the course of one episode and one or two scenes basically. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the awareness of both her and um, Mamimi's situations. It it feels again so accurate to to kids where Mamimi is clearly very poor she they're like you know she's eating a crust of bread and she's washing her clothes in the river and and stuff like this but it the treatment of it feels very accurate to how kids would respond to something they're not sure how they're supposed to react or you know they know that that's not 
a good thing, but they're not developed enough to then be like, what can I do to help? And yeah, it's, it, I really appreciate that element of it. And then just on a, a purely superficial level, I also really enjoy the, the design of the robot. No, no, the robot's great. All the robots are great. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of them, aren't there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the creature designs get pretty out there. I, I, I will confess that in, I would say at least half of the battles, because there's basically a battle in episode uh, that for such a seemingly random and madcap series, the episodes actually really are quite structured. Uh, about half of those battles, I could not tell you uh, for the life of me what happens in them uh, because the cutting is so fast and the motion is so fast and the, and the creature design is so wild that I can't really tell who's doing what to who and how. Uh, but it didn't stop me from enjoying it. <laughs> Do we have any other elements we want to discuss? Anything else coming to mind? I'm I'm curious. Um, since this was kind of like both of your semi first times or first times watching it, did you guys watch the dub or did you watch the original voice tracks for this? I watched uh I watched it with subs. Okay. And then I watched it with with dub. I, I preferred subs, but I could not find them at my local library, so I went with the dub. And you know, I really appreciated that you know the the uh, the clear effort that went into the cultural re references, like there's something that gets turned into Crystal Pepsi yeah. uh, as a reference in the dub that obviously I'm guessing was not originally that. It is not. Uh, but, you know, there's some details like that that I really appreciated. Yeah, no, I, I only asked because um, the director of the series was actually pretty heavily involved in the dub um, in terms of like finding folks. He was very concerned about getting the voices right in terms of an essence type of thing. He was really happy with who they got for um, to do Haruko for the dub. Um, mainly because if you listen to the, if you listen to both side by side, they actually kind of sound really similar between the Japanese track and the English track. The quality of the voice is really spot on between the two of them. It doesn't feel like anything was lost in that translation, which is really impressive for a dub. It's always great when there's a awareness of the, the potential power that a dub has to open up a show like this to a completely new audience. And so the fact that the the director or creator cared enough to, to make sure that it was a good one is encouraging. Yeah, the, the subtitle track that I, I don't know if this is the standard everywhere gets it subtitle track or not, but the track that I had also uh, has sort of a trivia track going alongside it. Uh, or up up top rather, so it's explaining specific cultural references as they go, oh, which does which actually means you have to pause it sometimes because you can't. It's literally physically impossible to read everything that's happening on the screen at one time. Uh, but it is uh, it is helpful. Yeah, I know that happens with some. I don't know how often it happens now because of the how the anime industry is kind of in anime licensing industry is kind of imploded. But it used to be a fairly common thing where you'd get at least little notes either on the screen or they'd be included in the DVD booklet. And they would explain things like as a footnote. So you'd have a sense of some of the cultural specifics that you needed in case you didn't know. Like, so did you both understand like the nosebleed thing that happened when he, when Haruko pulls out the big, pulls out Naoto's guitar and all the ladies at the consoles have suddenly have nosebleeds? I assume that had to do with the with the proximity of the satellite thing, but uh, maybe I missed something. No, that's all about being sexually aroused. That is a in anime, a nosebleed is a cue for being sexually aroused. So they're being turned on by the size of his 
phallus guitar. Yeah, that that's not uncommon for this series. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All <laughs> right. To be then. honest. <laughs> well, do we have any uh, particular uh, episodes or moments? I mean, it's only six episodes. Do we have any particular moments we want to uh, highlight as favorites? Well, I, I don't know about individual episodes because it, it does all kind of blur together for me in one big hectic mass. But I, I would just add that the the score is almost entirely Japanese power pop, which is pretty fun. Yeah, no, that's a band called The Pillows. Um, they weren't apparent. They, apparently, they're they're still not very popular. They weren't popular when they rec- when they did this. Um, basically, the director was just a big fan of their music. And he asked them if they could use it. They didn't write any original music for this. He just reused their old stuff. And they're just like, yeah, sure, go ahead. So he tried to use as much of their music as he could. And that's why there's just so much music in it, is that he was really excited to be able to use their music throughout. And it's a terrific, terrific soundtrack. I mean, I have both of the show's soundtracks, and I listen to them all the time because it's just so upbeat and fun. There is a real, uh, like I mentioned earlier, there's a real kineticism to the animation, and and that that ties in very nicely with the music. The music, as you guys both said, is used very well. Not only is it catchy, fun music, but it is incorporated very well. Obviously, just having one of our main characters, you know, beat up robots with a guitar is going to already lend itself to some pretty... Uh, entertaining uses of of both the the animation with the music but in general the, this is a show that I'm glad to have watched it it's it but it feels uh again like I said I I was watching it with a remove I couldn't really get hugely engaged with it or connected to it because uh I like I said I felt like I didn't speak the language so I was missing something in in watching it it was a bit too random at times for me and uh, and then also just all of the, you know, oh, look, a horn is growing out of his head. It's like it's a penis. Oh, look, she's sucking on a lollipop and she's eating a lollipop in the most phallic way she possibly can. Like, there's so much of that for me. OK, hold on. To be fair, is there any non-phallic way to eat a lollipop? Well, you don't have to to put pull it completely in and out of your mouth over and over and over and over again. You could lick it. <laughs> yeah, that's not helpful. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I just felt felt a bit on the nose. Uh, but anyway, this sex is... comedy. I mean, as a, if we just approach it, if we kind of just compartmentalize it as a sex comedy, or sex comedies ever almost always that subtle. I mean, verbally they can be that subtle, but visually, I mean, is there an element even in in English language of sex comedies being subtle? Well, yeah, I guess that's not my favorite genre, so. <laughs> that that might be but but it is clearly a show that's that's very creative and and very made with a lot of care and one that speaks to a tremendous number of people so i'm glad to have watched it i'm glad to have uh, re- actually i think revisited it. i'm pretty sure i watched it at least once before but i'm glad to have revisited it and like i said that last episode really did hit me in a way that the the earlier ones did not so i if you're unsure about Fukuri, um check it it's only six episodes each episode is a half hour and if you're uh if you get to the to the fifth episode and you're still confused don't worry in the sixth episode a lot more will kind of fill in the gaps and it may even prompt you to go back and sort of dive back in again yeah i, I mean i i can sympathize with where you're coming from on the other hand i don't know maybe it's again uh, overexposure to western series but I I did I got a kick out of getting so completely marooned 
in this show, especially in that I would say the fourth episode is maybe the most insane. That's the one that features our hero apparently killing his dad uh, until he, he finds out that of his dad. <laughs> yeah, but until we find out it's not that one was really wild. And at that point, I I, I was I just admitted to myself I I surrender. I this I don't have a reference point for this, and that is uh, a a joy because. Uh, I, I, I spend too much time not being surprised by the TV I watch. So so for me, getting a little bit, uh, getting way, way out of my comfort zone actually uh, has its own set of blessings. I'm kind of surprised by this idea. I'm Well, I'm not totally surprised, but I'm kind of surprised by this idea of getting outside a comfort zone. I can understand like cultural references and that sort of thing being foreign and like unknown, but I mean, even from like certain other angles, I mean, we've got episodes like, say, the one where he finds his dad feels very much like a horror episode to me, even though it's also about baseball. And then <laughs> baseball is scary, man. <laughs> no, trust me, I know. I played for one season as a small child; it did not go well. Um, but then we also have like, say, an episode about um, a school play and that sort of thing, and it becomes like a kind of a school festival in the end, especially after they cue in the clowns music, which is apparently played at Japanese uh, school sporting events, which I did not know until very recently. Um, so I think that there are like little cult, I think that there are enough genre touchstones that we can kind of touch on to at least understand some of where it's coming from. It's subverting a lot of those in its own very special way. But compared to the other ones that you guys have watched, did you have similar problems finding access? Obviously not Cowboy Bebop, because I'd understand being able to get into Cowboy Bebop because it's a very Western show. But for like Ghost in the Shell or for um, Robotech, did you guys have similar barriers into understanding what was happening? Well, I think that uh, this series, uh, you know, this is a specific we haven't really gotten into, but especially in those first few episodes, you've got long scenes where characters don't seem to talk to each other, just sort of um, at the air around them in a vaguely interactive fashion, which does make it quite like that's not really an issue with Ghost in the Shell or Robotech or uh any of the or the uh, or Cowboy Bebop, you know, those are all pretty uh, linear series in the sense of the the way people interact. Whereas in this show, it's got almost a a Dadaist approach to dialogue in some scenes. Again, that that does kind of uh, iron itself out a little bit as it goes on, as Kate mentioned. No pun intended. Uh -huh. um, but I but I, I I do think it is a little bit more. It's it's on a different level of eccentricity from those series we've already talked about. Well, you mentioned, for example, the school play episode, and I think that's a good example of it. And it's a show that, to me, is not worried about holding your hand as a viewer. It's just going to go, and you'll either catch up or you won't, but you'll just still probably enjoy the ride. But in that in that school play episode, all of a sudden, uh, Nata has, has cat ears. And never mentioned before that episode, he has cat ears in this episode. And then theoretically, I'm guessing, is that connected with the whole, like, it's a robot coming out of his head that just hasn't come out of his head yet? And then it's just, it's never mentioned again. And it's just like, he, he has cat ears now. Just well, no, those cat ears were like the the nails or like the feet of the robot that come. Of the robot that comes out at the end of the episode, yes. Yeah. But but still, it's just you know, it's it's it it's presented as it's not presented as oh no, this is connected with the thing we saw earlier. It's presented as as this oh he's had cat ears this whole time, you know, all along, and he's very accepting of the fact that he has cat ears. You know, well, I, I think that gets 
Well, one is that he's wearing a hat throughout the episode, and they've established by that point that he's trying to cover up whatever weird thing's growing out of his head by that point. Because in the second episode, he has that weird earmuff band type of thing to prevent the horn from coming out of the back of his head in that case. So it was just another visual signal that he's got something weird coming out of his head again. Yeah. But it, what I'm saying, though, is that it's just it, it's very free and willing to take to just go out on a lark. In, yeah. in a way that the other the other ones that we've we've watched thus far have been more uh, specifically narrative, whereas I feel like the show has more of a embracing of tone and of uh, you know like, like, there's a very clear narrative with our with the alien character, but she's not the main character. She's not our perspective character for most of the series, so it's much more ex- interested in giving us his uh, experience than it is in connecting the dots for you of all this other larger world, you know, invasion or in the medical, uh, mechanica and everything versus the rest of the town and ironing out the wrinkles of free thought and everything. All of that is going on, but the show is far more concerned with if, if he's going to drink a sour drink or not, because that connects to his experience with wanting to be an adult and grow up and all this stuff. And yet still trying to hold on to childhood. You know, so I think that's really the difference that I see between Fukuji and these other shows that we've talked about. Sure. Okay. Well, no, I was just curious. And plus, you guys haven't really watched any anime com- comedies, I think. And anime comedies, like any comedy, tends to be very cultural specific. And there's always that challenge of getting into that. One of these days we'll do an Adama Cantabile and I'll be all over the, the, the specific references. I'll be like, yeah, that's how conductors act. What? That's an anime set at a, at a music school, for those who don't know. That's, that's delightful and I'm a big fan. It's been a lot of fun diving in with the series and, and again, expanding our base of, of, of knowledge of both anime, but also just, you know, different kinds of shows than, than maybe what we're used to seeing with Simon, like you said. Uh, Noel, thank you so much for, for bringing it to our attention and, and talking about it with us here. Where can our listeners find your work and your writing online? Um, I'm all over Twitter at NoelRK, and I also review shows, though not anime, at uh, TV.com. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you again, Noel, for coming on. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse.